Hello, everybody. Today's guest on the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle, CSN Bay Area's Ray Ratto. Come on in, number seven of the US Sports Podcast. We are picking up some serious steam here. You're going to really like today's guest. Where else would you get a man who was born in the East Bay, covers the Warriors and the 49ers, but also spends a good amount of time watching Peep Show and QI? He knows who Stephen Fry is. Yes, Ray Ratto of CSM Bay Area joins me. We're going to talk about a variety of things. We end up talking about comedy because you'll sense through the interview he's very funny, very opinionated. Uh, Ray spends a lot of his time on various radio shows across the United States. Goes on Dan Patrick, goes on Rich Eisen, covers the Warriors, covers the, all the teams in San Francisco and Oakland for CSN. So it's a lot of fun. But there's been lots of news in the last seven days. So before we get to Ray, let's get to my four storylines. First up, I wanted to stay away from politics, but still talk about how America's two most popular sports leagues, the NFL and NBA, have publicly dealt with the aftermath of Donald Trump winning the election. Uh, To give you some demographics, the NBA has 74.3% of black players. Uh, The NFL is made up of a similar amount, between 69 and 75%. I think the NBA have dealt so much more... They're so much more socially aware um, than the NFL, and they've seemed to have come out and been a a little bit more honest about the election and the result. Uh, You look back through history, they pulled the All-Star game from Charlotte because of North Carolina's LGBT laws. The commissioner, Adam Silver, let the players wear the I Can't Breathe shirts in honour of Eric Garner, who lost his life through the NYPD. Uh, Donald Sterling, he was gotten rid of pretty pretty damn quickly from Silver as well. So they've moved very fast. This will not be a political segment. US election result has triggered league-wide comment. Stan Van Gundy, if you didn't see it, head coach of Detroit Pistons. This was his quote, or one of them. We have just thrown a good part of our population under the bus, and I have problems thinking that this is where we are as a country. Greg Popovich has related it to Rome. He's essentially said the US are Rome and that they're falling. 50% of spectators, if you look at it quite literally, voted for Trump. And that's what Van Gundy was saying was tough on his team after the election, that he had to be in an arena where half of them voted for a guy who he said quite clearly was a bigot and a racist. But I think the NBA have coped better than the NFL. Because if you look at the NFL, you've got someone like Rex Ryan, who openly voted for Trump. One of his players, Richie Incognito, voted for Trump. And then you've got Bill Belichick for the New England Patriots who wrote an open letter to Donald Trump saying how much of a great leader he was and how how he's had to deal with difficulty in the media. If you're a player in the NFL, an African-American, do you want to play for Rex Ryan? Do you want to be in the same locker room as a guy who's coaching you who is politically incorrect in your opinion supporting someone who has disregarded and slated for some time now your race and many other things. And it's quite poignant because last week, Cleveland Cavaliers visited the White House and you had Barack Obama in his last couple of months in office. Um, The way he does it, the way he brings, invites teams through to the White House and, and, you know, taking the mick, telling jokes... Uh, he was very funny about J.R. Smith and his shirt, saying that he thanked J.R. for wearing a shirt. He also thanked the Cavs for overcoming that 3-1 finals deficit because he's a Bulls fan, Obama, and he didn't want the Warriors to break the regular season record and go on to win the finals. So his Bulls still have the 72-10 and and the championship. 
And Barack also said that it was an oddity to have a Cleveland team at the White House. This is all coming back to Trump because Richard Jefferson, Snapchat, he used his Snapchat and he said with a picture, his caption was, words cannot express the honor I feel being the last team to visit the White House tomorrow. What does that say about what's been going on? A player has admittedly said, admitted that this could be the last time for at least four years that a team go and visit the White House because of who's in, in-house. It's common that players don't want to go and visit. Tom Brady didn't go last year. Um, but you've never had an entire league skip it before. Adam Silver emailed all the NBA corporate offices and reiterated that the league's core values are what they are. They've got a commitment to equality and diversity. You've got six African-American coaches in the NBA. There's been no real issue with the anthem because Adam Silver got ahead of it. I don't foresee it being a problem here, but the real big question is the White House. I mean, if I was LeBron James, who said he was going to have to think about it, cross that bridge when he got to it, and it's a great bridge to cross if you win another championship in the next four years. But if I'm LeBron James... I mean, I can't speak for an African-American, but it's probably very hard to be able to go and, and smile and laugh and, and enjoy some time with, with Donald Trump at the White House after a championship. So I think that's the biggest problem. And, and, and the, the NBA have done so... They, they seem to be more in line with everything in society. They put themselves out there more. They're openly honest. They speak positively and negatively about anything, but they do it in an educated way. Adam Silver trusts his players to come together he did that for the anthem he's quick to make decisions the nfl complete opposite and we've just seen it again with politics so watch this space will we see another team go to the white house in the next four years i don't know number two today and it's official number one pick jared goff will make his debut sunday for the la rams this guy was drafted on april the 28th and on sunday the date will be the 20th of november so i think he's i think he's fairly ready for this the Rams have done something we aren't used to in this impatient world, and that's wait for their quarterback to be 100% ready. The question has always been swirling about Goff since he wasn't playing. You know, Is he ready? Is he mistake-prone? Did they draft the wrong guy? They ran a no-huddle offense at Cal for four years in college. Back on November 6, the Rams lost a game at home to Carolina, and the crowd were frustrated. They just lost their fourth game in a row after starting the season 3-1, and one, and they... I think they were waiting just as much as Goff was. In the last three games, though, the Rams have scored two touchdowns. They've won two games this year without scoring a touchdown. In the last three games, the Rams' defense has given up less than 300 yards and just one touchdown. That's an amazing feat given the NFL's exploding offense these days. Jared Goff might be mistake-prone, but he's had nearly seven months to learn the offense. So, you know, how much worse can he be than Case Keenum? At four and five, I think the Rams are not firmly in the playoff hunt, but they're still relevant. So it means Jeff Fisher has some faith in this kid because he hasn't waited until the Rams are up to seven defeats before throwing him in there. But our perception on this has changed because five rookie quarterbacks have started this year. And some on this list are already stars. Dak Prescott, Carson Wentz. They've started every game so far for their respective teams. Jacoby Brissett, Paxton Lynch and Cody Kessler. They've all... They've all uh, They've all started, and I did, I did say that some were stars there, not all of them. But we downgraded Goff for this reason. It's not consistent that rookies have come in and, be, and are this good. The fact that Goff had to wait his time, I mean, that's generally what, what it should be. If, if a quarterback isn't ready after college, he has to learn the offense first. It's good to get some time on the sideline to see how it all works. But we downgraded Goff, I think. 
have to remember that Teddy Bridgewater's injury meant that Sam Bradford left Philadelphia. That paved the way for Carson Wentz, who was going to be a third stringer. Tony Romo was injured. That led to Dak Prescott. Another injury. Brady went down. That meant Garoppolo and then Brissett played. The Browns have lost about five, six quarterbacks. So it's circumstance as much as anything else. And the Rams had Case Keenum, who was going to look after the ball. He had a a, a poor offense, but he he did enough to get the Rams to a four and five record. But I think now Jared Goff is ready. So it's been proven that Jeff Fisher just wanted his quarterback, his number one pick, to make sure he knew everything and he was as best prepared as possible, as opposed to throwing him in there when he knew he didn't have a very good offense, even though clearly he has got a very good defense. But does Goff still feel like the number one pick? Is he still confident after having to sit out 10 weeks here? He's had seven months to prepare for this. A number one pick expects to play pretty much straight away in the modern day NFL. So is his confidence up or down, even though he's going to get his first start? Sunday, Miami at home. They're winners of four straight, and Goff's got a tough schedule. The Rams, after the Miami game, will go to New Orleans at New England. They'll host Atlanta. Then they'll play Seattle, and they finish up their season two games at home against the 49ers and the Cardinals. Good luck to Jared Goff. He's going to need it. Third on the agenda, and Tony Romo has had his press conference. He's going to suit up this Sunday for Dallas as Dak Prescott's backup. He was very open and honest about the situation he's in now. Clearly admitted that this is now Dak Prescott's team. And I salute Romo because it must be the hardest thing he's had to deal with in his career. It's exactly the same thing he did to Drew Bledsoe himself in 2006. You know, he was the guy coming in as a young player and he kept the job. Bledsoe didn't have it anymore. And the Cowboys are now sitting 8-1. and one. Prescott has taken the starting job away from Romo. In his statement, it was about a five-minute talk. Romo, he took no questions. You know, he signaled that he would cause no waves for the Cowboys. He said Prescott had earned the right to be the quarterback and that Romo had his back, which is exactly the right thing you want to do and if Jerry if you're Jerry Jones now who until very recently said that when Romo returns you know he he will not be playing because there was a lot a lot of the lot of the season where Jones kept saying and reiterating that Romo was still the starting quarterback but I think you're dealing with a team that's on such a roll has such great chemistry with the two rookies Ezekiel Elliott and Dak that Romo can't possibly come back in this is firmly Prescott's team now and i you know, I pride Romo for saying this because one thing Jerry Jones did say, if he saw Romo retire or leave the Cowboys without winning a Super Bowl, he would see it as one of the biggest failures he's ever had. And that looks like being the case. Unless Prescott goes down with an injury, you figure that Romo will leave at the end of the se- season and go somewhere else. He'll be released or signed somewhere else. Um, it's going to be very similar to Peyton Manning when he was looking for a spot after his indie career was over with. He landed up in Denver, went to two Super Bowls, won one. And that's the kind of spot that Roman wants to land in. He doesn't want to back up anyone. He doesn't want to go to a team that's rebuilding. He wants to go to a team that's a winner if they slot in a good quarterback. And Romo is still that. But it's whether he can still stay healthy. I think he's genuinely happy for the Cowboys. Um, He's very close to Jerry Jones, as I said. He actually went to one of Jerry Jones' grandson's high school games a couple weeks ago. That's how close they are. And Jones knows he's a nice guy. One thing that he did say um, that he about Romo is that he doesn't like to step on anybody's toes or undermine anybody, most of all his coaches, but also his teammates. Rings true right now because Romo had to step aside in Dallas. This was his team, 
even at the start of the season, even after a couple of weeks, we thought he was going to come back in. But Roma's going to want to pick his next team carefully. This is Dak's team now. It's no longer a story, even if they lose next week. He's gone to Pittsburgh and Green Bay and won. Prescott's performance against the Steelers was phenomenal. When Ben Roethlisberger threw down that fake spike to Antonio Brown, 45 seconds left and three timeouts, you just expected Prescott to drive down the field and win, and they did. Um, Elliot, by the way, MVP of the league right now and Rookie of the Year. And finally, we have some slow baseball news with it being award season, hot stove season. Uh, the awards are out. The National League Manager of the Year, Dave Roberts of the Dodgers. And in the American League, it's Terry Francona of the Indians. The Rookie of the Year is in the NL, Corey Seager of the Dodgers again. And the Rookie of the Year in the AL, Tiger starting pitcher, Michael Former. What I found eye-opening about Roberts' situation going into the season, after this award, only two Dodgers managers um, have led the club to the postseason in their debut season. That was Roberts in six, 2016 this year and Tommy Lasorda to go way back 1977 when Lasorda did it. How did the Dodgers' Dave Roberts win NL Manager of the Year, you ask? Well, these numbers should help you. 10 players were on the disabled list to start the season. 28 players went on the disabled list throughout the season. That's the most in baseball in 30 seasons. 55 different players were used, which tied a Dodgers record. 31 pitchers were used, which tied another Dodger record. And he made 606 pitching changes, which is an MLB record. Crazy. Crazy. Almost as crazy as Bartolo Colon. Did you see that Colon got 12.5 million to join the the Atlanta Braves? This guy's so old. And he hit his first home run last year. The oldest guy to hit his first home run. Um, he's chasing history, though. Cologne wants to become the winningest Latino pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Dennis Martinez finished his career with 245. Cologne has 233 career wins as he goes to Atlanta on this one-year deal. Um, should he put up another similar season to last year with the Mets, then he can probably surpass that. He was 15-8 and eight last year with a 3.43 ERA, and he's selected to the All-Star game. So he's surely on the way to that mark. He's so funny to watch. This will be his 20th season I'm looking forward to him swinging and missing again and uh, the helmet falling off. As, as long as he stays in the National League, he could play until he's 80, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, enough from me. It's guest time, Ray Ratto. This is contender for the best guest so far on the US Sports Podcast with Max Witter. We cover a lot of topical stuff. Colin Kaepernick not voting, the Warriors' current season, Westbrook wearing the photographer's bib, Ray Ratto's favourite comedians, Peep Show, Frankie Boyle, politics... Trump, everything's in there. So please enjoy Ray Ratto of CSM Bay Area. Well, this is a sports podcast, but uh, Donald Trump is your new president. So how is morale? Uh, Unless you voted for him, of course, Ray, and then I need to ask you. I mean, it honestly depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Some people are thrilled that you know they now get to jump up and down and scream at people with darker skin and some people feel very afraid, and I mean, one of the one of the things that that I think gives people hope in general is that you know the government we have made for ourselves is, is now thrives on stasis, so that no matter how many big changes you want to make, you know you have to have the patience to try to make them over a number of years, and Donald is nothing if if he's not impatient. So he might lose interest in a lot of shit. (laughs) 
Is there anyone in the sports world who reminds you of him? Oh, God. He is uh, Dan Snyder uh, <laughs> and Dan Gilbert. I mean, you have to look at the ownership suites. That's where, that's where that level of arrogance resides most happily. Hang on. Gil- I, know, but, I know why Snyder, but why Gilbert? Um, well, Gilbert, one, is a huge Trump guy. He's the guy who fought like hell to have the Republican convention in Cleveland. Uh, when LeBron left, he's the guy who took out the full-page ad, basically savaging James. Um, and he's a, he's a guy with a thin skin and a, a demand to be worshipped as a, as a great Nordic god. And, you know. and frankly, if he hadn't gotten James back, he might have been buried in that town. <laughs> I wonder which, what he... which, is why, which, is why, which is why LeBron is massively underpaid for what he delivers. Yeah. I wonder what he made of LeBron going um, with Hillary in the Ohio, you know, the campaign. What Do you think he was unhappy about that? Well, I'm sure he was, but we know who runs that franchise, so. Yeah, true. Let's put it this way. It's like your program director doing something you don't like. Happens Happens a lot. Yeah, so you just, you know, you, you learn to... You learn to develop a taste for shit sandwiches. <laughs> um, when I met you, I asked you how to pronounce your surname, and you said Ratto, like the rodent. Do you remember that? Is yeah. that is that how you say it to most people? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, you've been stirring it up on uh, Dan Patrick, Rich Eisen. I've heard you on those programs. Um, you always seem to have a witty riposte, but I think I think you honestly think about your opinions, whereas... You know, there's a lot of hot takes these days. What do you make of the, you know, that aspect of sports coverage? Um, I think most sports coverage is driven by producers, not talent. Um, and I think uh, um, it changed to a certain extent, at least on the, on the radio and punditry end when, when Skip Bayless became a player at ESPN because that's where the, the hot take uh, phenomenon first happened. And since that show made a lot of money for ESPN, everybody thought, well, that's the way to go. And you can either sign on to that or you can you know, try to find another way to do it. And I mean, I only know how to do what I do. So if I tried to be Skip Bayless, I would fail at it. <laughs> Just like if he tried to be me, he would fail at it. You you seek out the level that you can live with and go from there. Yeah. That I drink. Yeah, that's true too. I, now that I know that, I know your secret. Um, were you born in San Francisco? Uh, I was born in East Bay, born in Oakland. Okay, so you've covered sports teams throughout. Um, you've been there your whole life, I'm assuming. Um, yes. Do you see a future where there are no professional teams based in Oakland? It's apt that you're from the East Bay because the, the Raiders might leave. The Warriors are moving to San Francisco soon. I know the athletics are there as well, but do you ever foresee that, that happening? Um, I think by the time that happens, I will be safely dead. So <laughs> to, the, to the extent that it will happen, it will happen on someone else's watch. I think the, uh, the A's are close to getting a new stadium or at least, you know, uh, a committed to the idea of one, and B not really allowed to leave anywhere because they're being punished for um, 
trying to uh, for trying to get too chummy with San Jose without doing their due diligence. I think the Raiders could very well leave. I think the likelihood of the Warriors leaving is pretty clear. But I think Oakland will not be without a team, at least not like I said until I'm I've been face for face firsted. <laughs> Well, what's more likely than the Raiders move to Las Vegas or the Chargers stay in San Diego? I would say it's more likely that the Raiders move than the Chargers because the Chargers have not yet closed the door to uh, to San Diego. I think Dean Spano still has a relationship with uh, Kevin Faulkner, who's the mayor. And as long as you're talking to city officials, um, it means that you're at least engaged in some level on staying. The Raiders haven't talked to a, a city official in a while, and city officials have been told to go through a liaison, which is a sign that, well, you know, you're not talking to us. And I would say as of today, mark the date, the Raiders are more likely to leave than the Chargers, but things change. Things change fast, so... If you play this in three weeks, I could be dead wrong. <laughs> well, it's going to go Thursday, so it should be okay. Um, I can't, okay. I can't wrap my head around two teams in LA though. I, I, I don't understand how it would work, especially because you know you've got a fan base there now that are going to attach to the Rams, who have got a three-year head start, and then the Chargers come in. I, explain to me how that would work if it does happen. Well, look, I mean, leaving the town you're in to go to Los Angeles would be an entirely defensive move in that you just don't think you can stay where you're at and you don't want to pay for something that's going to belong to you. So in that way, you know, if the Chargers are the second tenant, um, without some sort of assurances from the National Football League that Stan Kroenke wouldn't put a hammer to whoever comes in, uh, I think it would be difficult uh, I think it would be more difficult for the Chargers to get its audience to travel than the Raiders' audience, because uh, the Raiders have been there before. Uh, so I think it's a harder move for the Chargers to make to go to L.A., but it might not necessarily be as hard a move for the Chargers, say, to try to go to Vegas instead and try to cut the Raiders off at the pass. But we don't know that that's going to happen, because, like I said, everything is still in flux, and it's been in flux for a while. And the longer that there's flux, the greater a chance for bribes to be exchanged. And nothing makes Vegas move quite like a good bribe. <laughs> Are there real sports fans in Vegas? Um, I don't live there. I suspect there are. I mean, it's the 40th, it's the 40th TV market. So whatever there is, there aren't as many of them. But, you know, on the other hand, you'd be aiming largely at higher rollers you know, just by the way pro sports are priced these days. So you don't need all million. You just need enough to fill your stadium. And if you can do that between, you know, uh, travelers from the other city, other tourists, um, and and well-heeled locals, you could probably get by. But, you know, in terms of the absolute math, I'm not a great source on that because, like I say, I don't live there. We should just play games at 3 in the morning and then you'd have guys crawling in from the casinos filling the arena I don't know if that would work maybe um, well a real good ambulance a real good ambiance because <laughs> all you'd hear is people throwing up 
not not too dissimilar to a current Raiders game. Um, why didn't Colin Kaepernick vote? Are you are you annoyed at him or not, or do you not care? Uh, I I could I could not possibly care less because not voting is a choice, just like voting is. And if you believe in freedom of choice, then you and you say, okay, you don't want to vote, fine. And he gets to have an opinion, and you can ignore it if you want, or you can stand behind it if you want, or you can be angry at him if you want. I'm, you know, I'm I'm sort of of the same opinion about, let's say, no shows. Let's say if uh, if Stoke is playing Sunderland, <laughs> and the place is only half full. You know your audience. Um, well, I'm 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 pandering. Let's be honest. Uh, and every person who chooses not to be there is making a statement. They're just not making a statement that you can see. But the statement is, I'm not that interested. And people who aren't that interested are saying something that owners and operators should be hearing, which is, if I can't fill the stadium, that's on me. That's not the fans failing. That's me failing. How do I, you know, how do I get them to want to be here rather than wherever they're at? And that's a, that's a function of, of running a franchise. It's the same like any other business. If you're running a yogurt shop, nobody's coming into your shop. Well, is it because they don't like you and they're being mean to you, or is it because you're making crap yogurt? I mean, that's the, you know, that's the analogy. So if people aren't going to your stadium for whatever reason, that's because they're telling you, I have something better to do. And it's up to you to convince me that what you're putting on is better than anything else I'd want to do. But has Kaepernick not behaved in a manner that suggests he isn't neutral, that he does have a side and he, he could have voted for some something else? Oh, no, he, no well, he, he absolutely could have. I mean, you know, I, I think it would be clear to him that if he had said, I must vote one side or the other, he would have voted for Clinton, even if it was just a lesser of two evils vote, um, just because of the way that Trump positioned himself during the campaign. Uh, but his stance, I think, all along has been that, you know, neither party speaks to, you know, his concerns. And I think he just decided, look, if I vote for either side, I am performing some sort of personal act of hypocrisy that I can't stomach. And, you know, whether, whether he can support that logically by explaining it to somebody else or not is almost irrelevant. I mean, he clearly couldn't be drawn to the polls by anything that Hillary said. And he clearly wouldn't have gone there based on the notion that maybe Trump is not what he purported to be during the campaign. So the fact that he didn't vote is a statement that he was unhappy with both sides. And in that way, you know, he made his statement. He said that these two people aren't good enough. And, you know, like it or not, that's a statement too. Don't you think it's crazy how, and I want to get your opinion on how the NFL compared to the NBA, let's say, um, post-Trump and everything else. But I find it fascinating how Colin Kaepernick got his words completely screwed up and in terms of the fans changing what he said and not listening to what he actually said. And then you've got someone like Bill Belichick who writes a letter to Trump or Incognito who's voted for Trump. Yet the fallout from that has been completely nothing compared to what happened to Kaepernick. What, what do you make of how the NFL 
are dealing with everything that's going on in the world and, and what their players will say? Well, the, the NFL's run away from this issue completely. And um, because I don't think they regarded it as something that was a money issue, which is the thing they care about most of all. But in terms of everybody else's reaction or lack of reaction to that, uh, Americans are a funny lot. Uh, your ability and right to speak is judged by your batting average or your winning percentage. The more you win, the more you get to say. Um, if, as, an, as a hypothetical, Tom Brady decided he was going to start kneeling for the national anthem or not voting. Um, there would be a lot of people who say, well, that's, you know, that's a man of his convictions. Um, now there would be people who say, well, I, his convictions aren't mine, so I hate him. But, but for the most part, we judge you by how often you win. And the more you win, the more power and rights we seem to want to emotionally imbue in you. And that's why I think, you know, the Belichick thing, you know, didn't resound much. Um, you know, he, I mean, he's, he's won Super Bowls. He's, he's widely considered the best coach in football, if not the best coach in America. And so he, for, you know, reasons that frankly, our culture probably will never be able to explain adequately. He gets to get away with that. while a guy who was a backup quarterback on a miserable team doesn't get to. And, you know, I, I think we should not underestimate the power of that that you know everybody has first amendment rights but some people have broader first amendment rights than others if you're african-american would you want to play for rex ryan now i think one for the, the the effrontery it would take me to speak for any black american is more than i can endure I mean, that's, I mean, I think it would be hard for me, but I think, you know, if you look, you know, if you look for a team, let's say where, where the owner has given money to the Republican party, I think that would be the same thing. And, you know, African-American players deal with that all the time. I think that's one of those choices that, you know, is entirely an individual one. And it's mostly motivated by, I've given my whole life to this sport. I'm not going to walk away just because of that. But in terms of my being able to say what I would do as a black American, well, you know, that presumes a level of expertise that I don't know that I could possess. Um, I think everybody finds their comfort level. Uh, I mean, you know, and I wouldn't want to say I couldn't possibly play for Rex Ryan because that could be interpreted as, well, that must mean that Tyrod Taylor shouldn't be playing for him. And that's not, that's not a place I'm comfortable. I mean, I think everybody's got to find, you know, what they can live with. I mean, that's the nature of life in the 21st century. So to my way of thinking, if you can play, I mean, you know, that's an individual choice and not one with an absolute yes or no answer. Well said. Yeah. Well, in lighter news, Jared Goff, who was drafted on April the 28th, will start against the Dolphins on November the 20th on Sunday. It's his NFL debut. So he's got to be ready, right? After all the time he's had, um, what have you made of the, you know, the fact that he hasn't played and, and how, how you think he'll fare? I think there's always a reluctance to play rookies unless you absolutely have to. Um, I think the Rams have been 
extraordinarily conservative offensively, and I think they thought that they could get away with not playing golf this year because they had Todd Gurley as their offense. Problem is, Todd Gurley hasn't had a very good year, the running back, and they are a dreadful offensive team. They're just ghastly, and I think the the pressure to play golf has increased with every passing week, uh, even though I'm not convinced that he could perform any better than Case Keenum, because I don't think Case Keenum is the only problem on that team. I think that's a bad offense. Uh, the uh, Jeff Fisher is not a very good offensive coach. They don't have weapons other than Gurley, and if you can neutralize Gurley, they don't have any weapons at all. So unless you can show me that Jared Goff will come in Sunday and find a way to make Todd Gurley run for 135 yards, uh, I don't know that there will be a lot of difference. I think I think we imbue quarterbacks with powers uh, independent of those players around them that they don't deserve. Um, I mean, everybody's raving about Dak Prescott with the, with the uh, Cowboys. And I think there are a number of teams in the NFL where he would be awful, not because he's inherently an awful quarterback, but because quarterbacks are dependent on the 10 players around him. Mm-hmm. He has a great running back behind him. He has a superior offensive line in front of him. He has guys he can throw to. Though That has given him the chance to show the gifts that he can contribute to the greater whole. If you put him on the San Francisco 49ers, I think he'd be – He'd be awful because the 49ers don't have any weaponry. And I think that more than anything else determines what kind of quarterback you, you are, except in a, in a very few rare examples. I mean, just, you know, Case Keenum is not a good guy for, for fantasy points people, so they don't like him. Uh, they're not winning, so, that, so, you know, people who root for the Rams don't like him. Um, but he's in a ridiculously bad situation. Now, could you put him on the New England Patriots and he would thrive? Probably. I mean, Matt Castle did, and once he left, you know, he was hopeless. I think we we often forget that quarterbacks do not single-handedly change the nature of a team. I think it's part of they are part of a greater whole. They are an important part of the greater whole. But it's like basically saying, you know, well, we have a great striker, but he doesn't score. Well. If the nine players around him can't get him the ball, that probably explains it as well as anything. Um, it's just, you know, teams are teams. They're not like just sort of individuals who walk on and they do whatever they want to do and magic happens. It doesn't work that way. And I think with the Rams and Jared Goff, I mean, maybe they can improve incrementally, but I think that's a roster. That, that's, a, that's an entire roster change that has to happen. And that's going to happen over a couple of three years before we, we could make any kind of judgment on whether he'll be good or not. What do you prefer covering more right now, the NFL or the NBA? The NBA, infinitely. I, football, frankly, if you couldn't bet on it, it would be jousting. <laughs> um, you know, the NBA has, has things that, you know, you know, it's just a more varied and less technologically dependent game. I mean, I would rather watch LeBron James go hard to the basket or Stephen Curry pull up from 30 or, you know, you know Blake Griffin, you know, follow his own shot twice and force down, a, a, you know, a dunk. I mean, that to me is more interesting than the NFL. 
But it's always been that way. The NFL is sort of, it's like war, except that it's war with shiny helmets and pretty uniforms. And war, to me, is not a great spectator sport. <laughs> but you can bet on it, which is why it survives. I'm with you. I, uh, I'm an NBA guy, so let's talk NBA. Um, were you there for the first part of the Westbrook-Durant saga? Yeah, and it was like most stories in America, you know, uh, made up for our made up for our amusement. I don't honestly believe that Russell Westbrook really, you know, is so annoyed with with Kevin Durant that everything is a statement. I think he's mostly playing with us. You know, hi, I can get you guys to jump if I wear a, a photographer's bib, so I'm going to. That was funny, though. I mean, I think Russell Russell Westbrook is a bright man, um, and he knows that NBA players are basically businesses with feet. Kevin Durant made a business decision. It's not one that Russell Westbrook liked, but in the end, Russell Westbrook would like to be able to make the same decision in a year or two. And maybe he'll be able to, and maybe he won't. But, you know, that is the nature of sports in America, and really probably sports throughout the world. The best players get to cut their own deals. And I think Russell Westbrook would like to have that if he doesn't already. And I think to that end, he understands. He may not necessarily like it, but he understands that Durant's time came, and at some point Westbrook's time will come too. Going into this season then with the Warriors, it's really fascinating. I've watched most of their games because I think it's just fascinating to watch that team, and you won't get a set of superstars like this. I mean, it's it, it's so rare. Um but an observation that a lot of people have had about Clay Thompson whilst we're trying to fit in the, you know, who, who goes first, who shoots the ball first, Durant, Curry, Green. How have you gauged Clay's attitude since Durant joined the team? Because he hasn't shot the ball as well. He's had the same, some, uh, similar same attempts. Um, he did start slowly last year as well. But do you think he's the odd one out here or is it just the media again making a story out of nothing? Well, I think once again, our, our great failing, and this is a this is true on both sides of the pond. We tend to try to we break break teams down into their component parts and say, well, gee, if Durant comes and he gets so many shots, that means somebody else is not getting shots. Well, maybe the people who aren't getting shots are guys like Andre Iguodala or Sean Livingston or Leandro Barbosa or you know whoever is not part of the top four or gone from it. Um, I, I think Thompson is, you know, in, in part, a pretty streaky shooter. When he's on, you can't defend him. Mm-hmm. And when he's off, you don't need to. But his contributions are more than just his, his spot-up shooting. And I think, you know, the Warriors in general have been doing growing pains. I mean, they're learning how to you know, assimilate not only Durant, but a team without a rim protector, a team with less depth off the bench. They're they're a significantly different team than people seem to think they are. And by trying to gauge what one of the top four is doing that maybe he wasn't doing a year ago or vice versa is missing the bigger point, which is that the Warriors have tried to construct a team that, you know, is bigger than the sum of those parts. And they're trying to, you know, make that, you know, convince us of that while taking one of the 
you know, transcendent free agents of the last 15 years and assimilating him into that. So I think people don't really know what the Warriors' true place is right now, nor do they know what uh, Clay Thompson's true place is. If the Warriors are to get everything they want out of this, out of the Durant deal, it's that everybody gets a chance to you know, mold together and become a team that nobody can play. And they haven't been able to do that yet because they're still in this transition. I think they're going to be in that transition probably through Christmas. I mean, I don't think we're going to see what the Warriors are going to be until January or February. And I think between then and now, uh, you'll see games where they're not very good. I mean, they weren't, you know, they scored 132 against Phoenix, but they gave up 120. That's not the Warriors at their best. Um, and that game was close as well in the fourth. Yeah. Yeah. Phoenix is hard for them to play for some reason. Uh, San Antonio's lost three games at home already. I don't think they lost a game at home they lost, all last year. Yeah, they lost one game last year at home. So, yeah. One so, thing that- I mean, I, I think everybody is going through the November growing pains. And I think to draw any conclusions like, oh, my God, Clay Thompson has lost his preeminent place. It, it, well, just silly. It's, it's something we talk about because we have to talk about something because the beast must be fed. But right now, the beast is being fed largely crap. <laughs> I'm curious as well. Um, Ethan Sherwood Strauss wrote a piece about Draymond Green. I'm sure you read it um, about how he could be the only he could be the reason why the Warriors don't uh, succeed ultimately. It, you're around the team a lot. Have you? Did you speak to Ethan as well? Uh, and and have you seen any evidence this season? Because Green, I think, is playing very well so far. Have you seen any evidence that that could be true? Well, again, the beast is getting fed. When he wrote that, you know, the season hadn't started yet. And yes, is there, you know, is there some friction? Yeah, but I think it's the friction of a management team that, you know, sometimes green chafes because, I mean, I think that's just the nature of his personality. But, you know, coaches and general managers deal with guys like that all the time. Every team's got one, if not two. Um and I think there's still some, you know, some blowback from Green getting suspended from Game Five of the final and basically turning that final around in a lot of people's eyes. Uh, but I haven't seen signs of of of, of this team being becoming non-functional because of him. And you know, let's face it: if you're going to say, you know, here's the reason why the Warriors might not succeed, and you could just as easily say, well, Durant won't assimilate, or Thompson will suddenly become a crapshooter. Or you can go to the obvious default, which is Stephen Curry can blow out an ankle and miss six weeks. I mean, it was, it was. I think I don't think the reporting was not solid, but I think it it, it basically was a hypothetical based on here this could go wrong, and then something could go wrong as a result of that. It was it was really more of a well researched spec piece than it was sort of empirical proof that. You know, Draymond Green it, it, it can't play with them. I mean, I, I think it's clear that he can, and I think they value his contributions. Does he irritate at times? Yeah, but I don't think that's a big deal. I don't think that's unusual, and I don't think it's you know terribly relevant in the long run unless something happens to make it so. If he's playing in a game and all of a sudden he walks up to Curry and cold cocks him, you know, okay, now you've got something. But none of that's happened yet. I mean – 
you know, Draymond Green basically he, you know, he he plays with his his, you know, his face is out there. So you know, until I see evidence that the Warriors have suddenly deteriorated to the point where they can't function, I'm not going to look for any scapegoat. I mean, they came if they make one field goal in the last four or last five minutes of Game Seven, they've had two parades and two rings. Mm-hmm. So I'm not seeing the the screaming danger that that people, you know, are trying to imagine because they've lost three lost two games or three games so far. I mean, I just I. I think it's guessing about here's here's what might happen if something went bad. Well, nothing's bad has happened yet. So, you know, it, it it it's a piece that stands on its own, but I don't think that, you know, it's necessarily dispositive of anything. Well, the proof's on the court, I think, because Draymond continually wants to share the ball. He's very good in transition. He looks for his shooters. He's doing the little things. And if anyone's shot less since Durant came in, it's him. So, um yeah, but I mean, the thing is, he remember when he first came here, he was the he was the second round pick. He wasn't the guy that you know had any expectations of how this was going to go. And he's and, you know he's always been that kind of player, and he's been raised to be that kind of player in this organization. But Curry is that kind of player, and Durant is that kind of player. I mean, they they don't have a team where you know one guy has to dominate the ball, and because of that. You know, they've all gotten along fine. If there was a culture, you know, wherein, let's say, as a hypothetical, Curry had to have the ball and be the go-to guy for the last shot, and then somebody else was trying to take that from him, then you'd have an issue of team discord. But you don't have that because they all play with the idea of, I've got a good shot, maybe he's got a better one, and ball movement and defense is what's going to win this for us, not necessarily me getting 28 a game. And as long as that is, you know, their their raison d'etre, they're going to be fine. I think we've seen this story with the Clippers before. They had a great start. Uh, the bench is looking better right now. Maurice Spates, former Warrior, Raymond Felton, Jamal Crawford's doing his thing. But better team after 82 games, do you think? The Warriors or the Clippers? Oh, I think the, I think the Warriors. I think anybody would take that. The Clippers have their own history of, you know, being the team that's perpetually on the come, but never finishing. So you're not buying. And in. they've done that, and their and their playoff their playoff history is, you know, to the extent that it exists, because it's not a very long one, is that they don't close out they don't close out series, um, and I think that you know they are a team that you look upon and say, okay, you're looking real good right now. Show us when the money's in the middle of the table, and that's in May. And they haven't got they got haven't gotten to June yet. So until they do that, I think people will look upon them with a mixture of admiration and skepticism. Right, quick fire before I let you go. Then some real quick ones. The team with the best press food. I haven't been to enough arenas to know, and I often pass on the press food just because. I figure if you can't feed yourself, you know, you shouldn't really be allowed out of the house. Um, <laughs> so you take you know, sandwiches. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, I've done that. Um, you know, and truthfully, I mean, and I don't want to be critical of, of teams and, you know, how they feed us because they don't, one, they don't have to. And in fact, in a lot of places, they probably just shouldn't. And secondly, I don't know very many people who are really good at preparing a dish for 200 and making it top quality every time. Um, I mean, you know, 
feeding people in bulk, you know, that's not how restaurants work. I know that. So, you know, I don't have high expectations, but I also don't have high attendance. So I'm probably not the guy to be able to, to give you an answer on that. If I'm really hungry and I haven't prepared properly, I will eat it. If I have prepared properly, I don't have to. But a good cookie never hurts. It's, that's true. Uh, one word to describe the current state of America. Um, scared. I think the people you know who, who voted for Donald Trump and see him about to be the president, um, I think in a lot of ways voted out of fear. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I don't think they know what's coming any more than people who voted against him. do. I don't think anybody knows what's coming. Um, and anybody who says they do is probably nuts. Uh, but the, maybe the better word is there's two Americas now and it's never been more clear than right now. Um, you know, and people, and I think part of this is the internet age. Part of this is, you know, seeking like-minded people at the ex- at the exclusion of people who aren't. But people who who are on on one side, just of the presidential election, didn't talk to anybody who was on the other side, because they've decided that political political discourse in this country really is. I think X. No, I think Y. Well, you think Y because you're an idiot and should be put to death. No, you think X because you're an idiot, and I should put you to death before you put me to death. That's not a discussion. That's that's an argument with pistols. And you can't function as a country if that's what you've got. What, what you end up with is Serbia and Croatia 25 years ago, and that's just not doable. So I, I think they're scared because... America, which has always had its own sort of self-confidence, doesn't have that anymore. And I think we're in for a bit of a rough ride for a while. That's fascinating. Last one. Have you considered or will you consider wearing an official photographer's bib at any party in the future? No, I don't dress up for parties. (laughs) Uh, In fact, if I'm invited to most parties, I will usually decline and then maybe just try to find a an old an old episode of QI on YouTube just because Good I don't man. have to deal with people then. <laughs> and I think we can all agree that people are not to be trusted. That's very true. Who is your favorite comedian, by the way? It changes. I mean, it depends on, you know, I mean, Doug Stanhope, who's an American, a pretty dark American comic, has always made me laugh. Um, but I like David Mitchell, too. It just depends on, oh, brilliant. you know, what you're, you know, do you watch, did you watch Peep Show? Oh, I worshipped it. It's phenomenal. I mean, I, I I watched Charlie Brooker the other night on um, Have I Got News for You, and I, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> I mean, he's funny. Tiff Stevenson's funny. I mean, England's got more really quality comics right now than America does, but America's still pretty deep with good comedy. Uh, Kathleen Madigan is very funny. Um, Jen Kirkman. I mean, I think Samantha B might be the new preeminent sort of comedic voice in America. But, you know, 
this is going to be a good time for comedy between your country and ours. Oh, there'll be plenty to laugh at. Late night shows are loving it right now. I would say that we are we are proud of our uh, our comedy, the dry humor aspect. But I I do think that shows are lacking nowadays. Programs have become less funny. I think the eighties and the nineties were a lot better with that kind of thing. I don't know what it's like in the states. Well, I think look, let's let's be honest. The longer any show is on the less funny it becomes because you run out of ideas or you're recycling old ones with another twist on them. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've heard people say that, you know, mock the week hasn't been the same since Frankie Boyle left. No, I've also heard people say it's never been better. So, I mean, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a judgment that's best left, you know, as subjective, you know, you, you, you laugh at what you find funny. I mean, I thought, uh, you know, um, the, the, the 10 o'clock news. I thought that was funny and died too early. And a lot of other people thought it was just sort of derivative and, and repetitive. So, I, you know, to me, if it makes you laugh, it's fine. It's, it's like wine. You know? You, you know, whatever you can get down your throat is good. <laughs> whatever you can't is not. And it doesn't have to have any sort of, you know, aftertaste or remind you of 12 other smells. If you can drink it, you win. If you can't, you lose. I saw Frankie Boyle um, last week. Actually, he recorded a show about the American election. So if you can get if you can get access to that, go watch it. I think the only clean thing he said was that you know a country that has seven Fast and Furious films, you know, you don't trust those guys. But it was very funny. He was he was really good. Yeah. Oh no, I, I, Frankie Boyle to me is hilarious. I mean, I just I still remember the uh, the uh, episode he hosted of Nevermind the Buzzcocks, where he basically just killed it every one of the competitors in a half hour period. And, you know, that's stuff that we don't have in America. We're far too reverential uh, for my taste. And, you know, and he's not the only guy who, you know, can blow people to smithereens, but he's as, he's awfully good at it. I mean, I mean, I've watched, I mean, I've watched the first four QIs with Sandy Toxic and she's different than Stephen Fry. And in some ways more pointed and it makes it it makes it different, and it makes it you know, better in some ways. I mean, Stephen Fry is, is is brilliant, on brilliant, but you know, a different twist that makes you think. It's not going to get much better than that. Yeah, no, I like Fry and Blackadder. That I mean, Blackadder four. I mean, I don't, oh, I didn't Blackadder like QI, still, but yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I just you know we don't have anything like that in the states, so you know it it it's fascinating to me. I mean, like I mean. I think in the same way that like people in England don't have anything like the wire. Mm. I mean, we don't have anything like QI and because it's so different, I mean, maybe I'm imbuing it with qualities that, you know, maybe it doesn't possess, but when it's on, I'm watching it. Do you think friends and Seinfeld are overrated? As I've never seen a minute of either show. What Really? I would say, yeah, I, you know, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld is funny, but I just never, I never found, I mean, I haven't found many American sitcoms funny in a while, so I, I just stopped watching them. And Friends sounded to me like, oh, good, like six people I would never hang out with live in the same place. <laughs> Gee, what? how much fun can that be? I'm sensing you don't really like humans. Well, they're overrated. I mean, look at their work product. You know, I mean, let's say, you know, we, we, haven't, we haven't been good since we finished the highway system, and that was in the 50s. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know when you guys stopped having fun, but, oh, you know. Oh, long time nah, ago. Yeah, humans suck. 
Yeah, humans suck. Let's be honest. I mean, if the frogs had opposable thumbs, we'd be working for them. <laughs> oh, you're funny. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, Not at all. Amazing. If you don't like people, then that is that's quite a catch to get you on a podcast. Well, I mean, look, I like I like people in small doses, and only some of them. Just just the British. Well, you're. I mean, look, you, look. If I was living in Britain, I'd probably hate you guys a lot more. Probably. Familiarity brings contempt. You're a Leave voter. I am certainly not. <laughs> I think we should all leave everything. What does that mean? I I think I I think any any system that would allow me to be in it is not one I should be at. So you're not when you when you cover sports you you don't think you're conforming to anything at all. I'm trying to get paid so that I can keep my children from rising up against me. It's, it's entirely self. It's it's entirely self-preservation with me. I think we've I think we've covered a lot here. I think we've we've proved a lot. Yeah, global hatred, bitterness. Yeah, you know Stephen Fry. Just, yeah, you know I I don't think it gets you know Frankie Boyle, national charmer, all of it. <laughs> the, by the way, his, the name of his first book was My Shit Life So Far. Have you read it? Uh, yes, I have. And <laughs> good man. Yes. I mean, because you know what? Here's here's the one thing I will leave you with that you know we are we are developing a global culture which doesn't think that reading and writing are important. And the fact is, reading and writing are the two most important things because even if you're not reading for fun, you're still reading just to survive. And if you can't write your ability to be creative is basically zero. So, like, read and write. Otherwise, you're going to end up turning a wrench for somebody else. And there's no future in that. There you go. The message. Get off Netflix. Yep, that's me. I'm, 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 I'm a joiner. I'm a lover. <laughs> cool, man. Well, it was great to talk to you again, Ray. Really, really had fun. Yeah. All right. Take care. Enjoy the games. Ray Ratto there, go check his workout, CSM Bay Area, um, a really great writer, and I really enjoyed speaking to him. What did I learn? Well, the least important thing I did learn was that Ray Ratto has never watched a single episode of either Friends nor Seinfeld, but that's not important. You can check me out on Twitter at Max underscore Whittle, and you can find the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle on Audio Boom on its official page and also on iTunes. Please subscribe and like the page on Audio Boom. And you can tweet me as well. So until next time and next week, we have a very special guest, a New York Giants fan who is living in the UK, was born in the UK. How does that happen? Well, we'll find out next week. Thanks for listening.